0: So our speaker today is Blake Williams. He's the the founder and the executive director of Pure Life Alliance. And this is one of our ministry partners. And Pure Life Alliance is here in Oregon, uh, in Portland. And um, what it is, it's a large network, okay, of support groups, Christian counselors, and churches working together to help families affected by sexual brokenness. You know, that's a very broad uh, subject area, um, but this is a really important message for men in particular to hear. Maybe more of this day and age than ever. Just if you're watching the news repeatedly, you're seeing men, uh, men behaving badly, okay, in some of these areas. So I think we have a lot to learn uh, from Blake this morning. And uh, one thing I'll just say this too, Blake. Uh, good friends with Pastor Chris, you know, so that's a, an instant in with us. Um, and also Pastor Adam, uh, when I told Adam that uh, Blake would be speaking, he got real excited. Um, and I've just had a little bit of interaction with Blake. But I want to say this, in I, Blake I sense a real humility, but also a real strength, all right? I think there's a real power in his message, power in his story. And uh, he he wants to see men live lives, you know, free from any kind of sexual addiction or or, or any. You know, that's, again, a broad category, Um, but just men living lives of purity. Um, So that's what he's going to be focusing on uh, today, and I know we'll be blessed for that. Um, So I'm glad you guys are here. This might be a message, you know, speaking directly to you and to your masculine heart, or maybe you're going to hear this and think, wow, there's someone else I know that really could benefit from this. I'm sure Blake will address that as well. So glad you guys are here. Let me pray for us, and then I'll hand it over to Blake. Father, thank you uh, again for this morning, for the guys that are here. And uh, I just pray that we would receive this word from Blake. I pray that our hearts would be open and uh, to hear on this topic of purity, which is so important for so many reasons. Um, but I pray we would receive it, and I recognize it could be a difficult topic or an awkward topic. But we want to be fully engaged, and I pray for Blake that he would just speak with uh, with great transparency, humility, and, and strength. Um, that he would convey the message you have given him, Father, for us uh, with great clarity. And we want to give you the glory for that, Father. Um, so thank you for this time of fellowship of learning. And uh, I just ask you to help us to make the most of it. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, guys, let's welcome Blake. So I have till 11 o'clock, is that, is that where the timeline is?
1: Right on, right on. Okay, you're not doing services this weekend, I'm just going to speak the whole weekend long. The women are meeting elsewhere on some other church campus. Uh, we were sitting talking about music and the power of music here at our table, not just Christian music even, but um, uh, even musicians getting into the, the mathematics of music, right? And, and almost elevating it to a point of worship and um, pursuing it in almost a godlike, almost idolatry sort of way. It's interesting to me, and I was about to make this point before Mike came up to introduce me, so I wanted to make it now, so you all are welcome to listen, but I'm talking to you guys at my table. There's fascinating evidence for this phrase called redemptive analogies in things like that, where you actually can see God making himself known and present in all sorts of what you might consider mundane, boring, everyday sorts of things, but God's actually saying, hey, hey, here I am, listen, if you hear this, if you see this, you'll see and hear me. So for me, that was a fascinating conversation, and I think there's some very power. Uh, powerful concepts in experiencing life in that kind of way. What I'm about to share with you is not powerful, and I don't know where the redemptive analogy is in it. Good luck trying to find it. My wife is on the leadership team um, at the at the church that we attend, and she was stuck on 217 behind a long line of cars. I can't believe I'm actually sharing this. I was trying to con- trying to decide whether I was going to share this with you uh, on my way here, and I. Uh, I sort of it was sort of a 50/50 chance, so you, you got this. It's very um, what's the phrase? Anyway, so she's on the highway at 2:17. She's stuck behind this long line of cars. She finally gets into the fast lane and gets past the slow-moving Prius. right? How many of you have experienced that? <laughs> now, I have nothing against Prius owners. Frankly, I have a fully electric car in the garage at home, and I drove here today in a hybrid. It's a Honda hybrid. But I'm, I'm, I'm into that, okay? However, I don't know what it is with Prius drivers. Are, do we have any in the house? Okay, wow, there's at least two. Okay, <laughs> you're more about speed and the torque from the electric engine, right? Electric motor. Oh, there we go. There we go. So she, she gets into the fast lane, and finally, you know, the cars are starting to go by, and she glances over, and she sees uh, the chairman of the elder board at our church, and he is digging something fierce. I mean, digging deep, right? And clearly he's thinking about a lot of other things other than driving on 217 and trying to keep the speed up. Well, that went through my mind this morning as I was digging something fierce on the way here. And I got closer and closer to River West, to Lake Oswego, and I stopped because I thought, I think there might be some guys who like, are like, on their way to the church and they might see me. And they'll say, oh, that's our speaker. They'll recognize me and say, so this is, this is the element of shame, right? Every single one of you in this room picks your nose. You see, there's a little chuckle, and some of you who are trying to keep straight face are trying to not actually admit it. But you don't want even the strangers around you to notice that you're doing that. What kind of person picks their nose in public? Come on, really? So the car pulls up beside you, and you're like, oh, okay, I better stop now, right? there's this space that we find ourselves in. We don't actually want to be known for who we are, for what we actually do. We actually would rather be perceived as what I want you to perceive me as. And so in all sorts of ways, we end up hiding and not being real, not being authentic. I think my longing for each of us walking out of this room, is that our character would take on a greater authenticity. That, that doesn't mean, by the way, um, more godliness. It might. In fact, it, I I'm going to say it, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be more godly. Simply that what is true about who you are on the inside is seen on the outside. You're being authentic. It matches. There's not a disconnect from who you believe you are inside to how you portray yourself on the outside okay so that'd be a huge huge goal in my mind for each of us as we leave here that we would just be just a little bit more authentic in each of our relationships in each of our roles in each part of our lives let me tell you my story are you guys safe this morning can I share vulnerable stuff with you I know this is going on tape, and anyone from all across the world in the web is, but you know, it's an important question. It's an important question, because, if I don't feel like you're safe, why would I entrust myself to you? Why would I do that? It'd be too dangerous. So isn't that a measure in which we gauge the value of relationship and relationships? In fact, isn't that even a measure in which we gauge our marriages? Is my wife safe? are my children safe? Can I be authentic in their lives in ways that they get to see and know more of who I am? Let me share my story with you. And it's a tight, really brief one. I'm going to seriously hit mountaintops, but I'll press into a few areas just to give you a sense of who I am. Truly, I, do I, are, we, are we good at nine, till nine? Cool deal. So I actually became a Christian. I grew up in Canada, by the way, Josh. So, um, uh, yes, Canadians have very sensitive ears. Um, So I grew up in Canada. I became a Christian at the age of three. I was sitting on the front seat of our family car. My dad was driving, and I I glanced across at my dad. Again, three years old, right? And I knew as I looked at him that he and my mom had something that I didn't have. And I knew what it was, too. It was a relationship with Jesus Christ. It was that moment that I accepted the Lord. Fast forward a few years. Uh, I'm the youngest of four kids. My middle brother, uh, quite a bit older than I am, so I was the baby. My mom always referred to me as the baby. She stopped now, which is kind of pleasant. That's nice. I was eight years old when I saw my first, first pornography. It was in my brother's room. I asked my parents later as an adult to adults, um, did you not know there was porn in our house? And they honestly said, no, we didn't know. We didn't know it was in his room. I'm like... Okay, well, that that was my first exposure. And there was this crazy attachment immediately. Immediately. I masturbated for the first time at at 15. I came home uh, from youth group. A friend of mine drove me home. I didn't have my driver's license yet, obviously. We were sitting outside, and he said, hey, dude, have you ever tried masturbating? Of course, he probably didn't say masturbating. He used some other crass, you know, phrase. And I said, no, what's that? And he goes, oh, dude, you have got to try this. And so I used the term friend very loosely because that set a pattern of behavior for the next 18 to 20 years that masturbation became my solution for so much. Right? So I had sex for the first time at 17. I sang in the high school choir, sang tenor. uh, And I walked in. I was running late. And uh, everybody was in their place, you know, sopranos, altos, baritones, basses, yada, yada, whatever. Anyway, so I walk in, and I literally just scanned the room like this. I was just looking. It was the first, yeah, it was actually the first class uh, of the year. I scanned the room, and that fast I saw the look uh, that I'd seen in porn magazines for years on the face of one young gal. And within two weeks, she and I had had sex. And uh, that was my first uh, interaction of sexual Um, being sexual with someone else. Um, Lots followed after that, to the point where I actually had... uh, I dated my wife before we were married. Wow. As I was saying that phrase, I knew it was going to sound goofy, but I just finished it for you. Um, And she was not a believer when we were dating, before we got married. In fact, we were engaged before she was a believer. And um, so we lived together, and so we were sexual. We had a, a f- effectively living a, a, a secular life um, uh, and having sex regularly. Mid-90s, half of the guys in this room know exactly what I'm about to say. 95, 94, 95, 96 was the start of you, you viewing Internet pornography. It is, that, that was, those were three Brutal years because of internet access, but more than that, finally speed that allowed the internet to be a, a resource and an access rather than the glossy pictures coming out of a magazine but interaction and, and viewing online. Same was true for me. 95, I was traveling. I had one of those free AOL discs, you know, free for a month, kind of get you hooked kind of thing. It wasn't getting hooked on porn at that point. I was getting hooked on, you know, their service, but threw it in. Woo! Wow, this is incredible high. Just supercharged my sexual addiction my sexual sin, big time. From that day until 2000, January 2000, I white-knuckled it, called people regularly, um, uh, told my mentors I struggled with porn and masturbating. They gave me behavioral solutions. It was all white-knuckling. You know what I mean, right? Like, I'm just, I can't do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. It was all focused on behavior. And we'll talk some more about just in a few minutes why that doesn't work. That's not a long-term solution. That's not a long-term solution at all. New Way Day is this. Um, uh, This chain that I wear was a gift from my wife on the sixth anniversary of New Way Day. I had just come out of a Christian counselor's office. I was four months from graduating with my Master's of Divinity from Multnomah Seminary. I'd come out of a Christian counselor's office, and I finally, finally heard real solutions to what I'd been struggling with for the past 18 to 20 years. Came out of his office, and it was one of those Januaries where it was freezing cold, but the sky was totally blue, white puffy clouds in the sky, and the only way you could stay warm is because you were in the sun, right? It's that kind of a day. And I looked up into the sky, and I said, God, I'm on a different road now, aren't I? And it was as though his spirit said to me, yeah, yeah, this is a different road. So my wife and I celebrate that day. It's January 27. We celebrate it every year. We call it New Way Day. It's a a profound milestone in the life that I was living and the transition uh, that God was bringing into my life. So that's that's a huge component. From that same year, actually, I was a pastor. I was a men's pastor. Uh, At Sunset Presbyterian for five years, from 2000 to 2005. And then out of that, we really started doing purity ministry while I was there at Sunset. Both for men as well as for wives who were in relationship with guys as well. Um, Then later, once we started Pure Life Alliance in 2005. um, So, again, total mountaintop, right? I think I just took 10 minutes. Normally, I take about three minutes to share what I shared with you. And we could be here another hour and a half. As each one of you, if you were sharing your stories, could take that amount of time and more to speak about who you are, to speak about the journey that you're on, speak about the things that are important to you, things that aren't important to you, things that matter, the difference you're making. This is why we're here. This is why you're actually sitting around these tables. It's this connection. It's this value. It's this investment in who we are, certainly, in who sits beside us, and then ultimately in who, with a capital W, calls us to this space in this place if you all would just stand up briefly this is really important so come on stand up and while you're standing reach into the middle of the table and grab one of the fmo cards and then i want you to hold it up like i literally want everybody to have an fmo card in your hand i want you to hold it up so i can, so it's proof that you've got one okay awesome so go ahead and put it in your pocket, put in your shirt pocket, put in your wallet, whatever you need to do. Just put it on your person. Don't set it back down on the table. Good. Okay, go ahead and sit down. Awesome. Let me tell you why I just did that. Because there are guys who are sitting in this room who need help with their purity. And now they have the information that they need. Notice I'm talking second person here, right? I could be saying, and now you have the information that you need. What's cool about that is that you didn't have to feel the shame or the embarrassment of reaching for a card that maybe somebody else would see that you were reaching for. Just out of honesty and genuineness, you're not quite there yet. You're not willing to admit to those sitting around your table that actually you struggle deeply and you're pretty messed up and you're deep into this and you need help. Now you've got the info you need. Now, for those of you who truly are not in the space that I just described, you have contact information for a guy who might be brave enough to share with you that he needs help. So it might be for a friend as well. When you get home, when you go through your next weeks and months, like, and you're sorting through, cleaning out your wallet, don't throw this card away. Hold on to it. Because if you have it, the Lord will give you an opportunity to use it. Okay? Keep it as one of your primary things in your wallet. All right, cool. Listen, I am a great motorcyclist. In fact, I actually thought I'm about riding here this morning. I had a little bit of a headache all night long, so I decided, you know what, I wouldn't actually be very alert. And it's kind of dangerous when you're on a motorcycle if you're not really paying attention. And so I decided to drive my hybrid. Okay, um, I drive a really amazing bike. It's a Honda VFR. It's a 1200 shaft drive. It's just like a pocket rocket I actually had the ECU reflashed recently oh my gosh it's crazy it's total new fuel mapping the first and second gear restrictions are gone the high-end restriction is gone although I will never get to whatever 155 160 miles an hour right but it's an incredible machine I'm still learning it I just got it last year to 2010 so you know I got a great deal on it anyways um, I am a great motorcyclist I've been riding since I was 16. Uh, In fact, I actually taught with Team Oregon, the local uh, state-sponsored training program. Have any of you taken the Team Oregon riding course? Oh, my gosh. If you have, um, you know what I'm talking about in terms of the the coaching and the training and the the equipping to ride and to ride well. Well, I did that. I was was an instructor for Team Oregon. So I'm a great motorcyclist. Um, What I am not is an excellent motorcyclist. There's a difference. It's a fine line, but there's a difference. Let me tell you a story about what happened last year, last summer. Again, it was a brand new bike, right? We go on an annual motorcycle trip. My uh, brother-in-law uh, got me into riding when I was 16, and uh, so we do this annual bike trip. And we were down in Northern California on some of the best roads there are to ride within, within a, you know, a motorcycle range. Um, and um, my wife and I, she rides too, by the way. She rides a Ninja 650R. Girls who ride sport bikes are hot. Let me just tell you that right now. We have one of those photo books, and we have, this, we have this picture of my wife sort of laid out, you know, stretched out in her gear in front of her sport bike, and that's the caption, girls who ride sport bikes are hot. Anyways, so, but she was not riding on this particular trip. She was, we were two up. She was behind me on my bike. We come into this one corner... And uh, did I mention this is a new bike for me? It's also the first bike that I've had that shaft drive. It also, I think, had bad gas in it. Uh, let's see. And it also had the whole ECU thing, like the previous stuff and the problems. Like, it was like Honda's fuel mapping just sucked. It was bad, like, like halting spots and everything. Anyways, so we're, we're, we're coming into this corner and just a little bit of Team Oregon training here. The best course through a curve is outside, inside, outside. It's true for a car as well, by the way. If you take a corner outside, inside, outside, it actually straightens the curve out and you don't have to lean over as far on a motorcycle. It's much safer, it's much it's much smoother. Anyways. So I'm coming in on a great path of travel outside of the lane. Well, I'm going too fast. I have to admit that. I can't believe I just admitted that out loud. Anyways, this is the difference between a great motorcyclist and an excellent motorcyclist. I'm going too fast. I don't know the bike well enough. I think I have bad gas in it. I've got halting with the ECU issue. I've got my beloved on the back of my bike. I lean into the curve, and I realize I'm not going to make this curve. Oh, crap. And everything that I learned and have known about motorcycling went, it just like, disappeared. And I manhandled that bike to try to get it around the curve. In my head was, and again, the curves typically be in mountain roads, right? (laughs) So in my head is going down and going off. There were no guardrails and it was steep and it was dangerous. So that's what's happening in this space. What's true about me as a great motorcyclist is that I still have lots to learn about motorcycling. I've taught people how to ride a motorcycle, and I still have lots to learn about it. I don't ever want to stop learning how to ride a motorcycle better. That'd be foolish. It'd be a dumb plan. And what's true about the topic for this morning is that we must always continue to be on the journey to know what it looks like to be more pure. I don't want to ever stop learning what it looks like to be more pure, okay? There, I think there are probably three types of guys in the room this morning. The first are those that, um, uh, and truly, I, I, I don't use this phrase. I think some people overuse this phrase, but, but that you are, you're actually very godly men. You're a very godly man, and you still have a lot to learn about purity. I know for sure, because I know some of you, there are some of you who are on your purity journey. You're winning, you're, you're engaging, you're pressing in towards greater purity, and you still have a lot to learn about purity. And then there are those of you who are not tackling this issue at all. You're just sort of moving forward. You're sort of doing your thing. You're stuck in the porn. You're stuck in the masturbating, maybe prostitutes, whatever, strip joints, whatever it might be. You're caught in that space, and you're not willing to get help. You still have a lot to learn about purity. Two things. If you were to forget everything I've shared about nose-picking, about motorcycling, about being and living authentically, these two things, if you could hold on to these two things... It'd be really cool. The first is that sexual purity isn't only about behavior. Sexual purity is not only about behavior, it includes all of who we are as creatures made in the image of God. That's the first thing. The second thing is we are called as men to a journey. You've already heard me using that phrase. We're called as men to a journey, not a destination. Let me just make a really quick comment to those of you who who really do in a right way assess yourselves as godly men. Please don't feel like you've arrived. Please don't say, hey, I've got this dialed in. That's destination thinking, by the way. That's what I mean. This is not about a destination. I'm done, or I'm just going to ride out the rest of my life, not pressing in, not learning more, not understanding more. These two things. That sexual purity isn't only about behavior and that we are called as men to a journey, not a destination. This means then that for each one of us, no matter where we are on the maturity process, is that each of us can live more pure tomorrow than we are living today. That's true about every one of you in this room, whether you are willing to admit it or not. You can live more pure tomorrow than you are today. Those two things. Let's figure out why purity isn't just about behavior, all right? So, we have a couple of models that we use within our ministry. Um, And um, Mike offered to let me use the PowerPoint, but um, I I figured your imaginations and your ability to sort of see things, men are very visual, right? That I should be able to describe these models to you and you should be able to hold them and keep them in your head. So, let's see how well you do, okay? The first one is this. Um, And it is uh, what we refer to as the heart of the matter. It is concentric circles. You know what I mean when I say that? Circles within circles, okay? So the biggest circle on the outside, then another circle within, and then the closest, uh, tightest, smallest circle right in, the, in, right in the middle. Let's start with the outside circle. The outside circle is, is, um, is behaviors. So those behaviors are everything that you can possibly see in the life of another person. You can see them in your own life as well. They can be as mundane as me deciding to walk over here and take a drink of water, and that's an actual behavior, right? It can be as profoundly destructive. See, look at that. I, he, he's, and you're taking a sip, and who else is doing that? That's awesome. There's a reason why I point that out. Anyways, um, what is uh, anything that is a behavior that others can see? is a visual action, right? So... What we want men to do when we have them think about their sexual behaviors, the choices that they make behaviorally, ooh, that was interesting, I mixed a few things in there, is we want them to see not those behaviors as an end in themselves and just stopping those behaviors. We actually want them to understand that those behaviors are actually caused by something else. Something else that actually points to how God created us in his image. You see, because there is no behavior that you do, in all the years that I've been making this point, no one has been able to prove to me that this is not true. So if you happen to be able to disprove my next point here, please come see me afterwards. Don't embarrass me in front of everyone. The point is that my behavior is governed by my thoughts. Other than the autonomic stuff that happens in your body, that's not really a behavior. That's not really what we're talking about. Everything that I do... every every turn I make in my car, every business decision and action email that I send, it's processed and caused by my thoughts. There aren't behaviors that are separate from my thoughts. So then if that's true, then we can't just define purity as living behaviorally pure. That'd be ain't accurate at worst and disillusioning it no at best and disillusioning at worst it, it 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 takes us to a place of cheapening what it means to live pure by just saying purity has to do with my behaviors this is back to my comment and my point of what I was doing I was white knuckling it it was all about behavior and frankly that's what I was hearing from godly people around me one of my mentors said and this isn't in isolation, it's bad counsel. In a broader approach to living pure, it, it's an okay piece of counsel. One of my mentors said, "Hey, whenever you're getting te- whenever you're tempted, whenever you're tempted to masturbate, you just go to your wife and have make love with her and love her and connect with her emotionally." Well, that was, and again, we don't have time to develop how that is both a positive encouragement as well as a negative encouragement. But for me, that ended up being just a behavioral focus. You just need to solve the behaviors behind this. Okay. We can't define purity that way. And we don't want men to define purity that way. I don't want you to define purity that way. So our behaviors are governed by our thoughts. So then we have to address our thoughts, right? The word says so. Most people fall in the category of defining purity as, yes, it's behavioral. And yes, the word is very clear. We're supposed to take every thought captive, right? That's, that's, you know, kind of the toss-out passage. Not that it's not powerful, but it's sort of the obvious one that aligns with this concept. If I'm going to define purity, if it's going to actually measure whether I'm living in a pure and a godly way, I have to address my thoughts, my fantasy, the things I think about, the brain cycles that consume me. Because we've already said those thoughts govern the choices and behaviors that I make. Cool. So now we've got those two pieces and we say, okay, good, that's purity. Let's go there. And all the men in the room said, no, 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 that can't be all of it. Or maybe some of you said, no, that covers it. Because actually what's true about behaviors, that they are governed by our thoughts, our thoughts are also governed by something else as well. And this is a clear evidence of our nature being made in the image of God. What, what causes you to think about the things that you think about? Why do you think about those things? Why do they have value for you? i just give you a tip. That's a rhetorical question because I'm going to tell you what the answer is. I don't want you to answer right now. We can do a Q&A if we have, actually happen to have time to do it. But um, Right in the center, here's the tightest, most um, center part of who we are as, as people and certainly then as men, is our heart, our longings, our desires, our needs, the things that matter to us, the values that we hold as important. See, the things that we think about are governed by those things. The things that matter to me that I process on, they're governed by the deepest part of who I am. Let me give you a mundane illustration. And it's always dangerous for me to share this in a men's breakfast. Um, But I'm I'm that strong a man, Mike. I can take the abuse that might come. I am not a big organized sports guy. I just, I, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. There's so much other stuff to do and yet I'm, like, obsessed with, I'm totally mocking any of you, but I hope I'm not shutting you down. But there's, I'm just so obsessed about who's getting transferred to where and what team and the draft picks and who's winning against what. And who, like, truly, I don't even know when Civil War weekend is. I don't have a clue. People always have to, like, tell me so that I don't plan ministry events over, the, you know, over these big events. Um, now, what is true about you, those of you who love organized sports, is not true about me in my thoughts and what matters to me. You will not find me thinking about any of those things I just mentioned. Who's in what fight Is there's some finals or whatever that are happening right now? Is there like softball or something? I was talking with somebody. They were telling me there's like... I don't know, like, ooh, Pac-12 softball, ooh! Like, it's going to be a whole West Coast thing or something. Aren't you impressed that I even know that? Really, truly, people who know me are shocked when I use, like, sports analogies and stuff. Anyways, back to this issue of, I don't think about sports. It doesn't fill my mind. And guess what? It doesn't govern my behavior either. I don't get uh, season tickets uh, for any teams. That's a behavior. I don't go buy my favorite... Um, Uh, team's jersey you know at the local five and dime i like i it, it doesn't happen in my life back to the issue of we were saying we can use behaviors to indicate the thoughts that cause them in the same way the thoughts that cause those behaviors indicate the values and the longings that are happening in the heart of the heart of a man in your heart If you are not being faithful to observe the behaviors that are evident to everybody around you, including yourself, to consider the thoughts that are driving those behaviors, and then ultimately then finally going to the place of saying, what's important to me? What matters to me? And and while we're talking about purity this morning, frankly, this model works for anything. You You treat your wife badly. You chastise your kids overly in anger. What a great way to process through. What is it that's actually driving why I'm behaving the way I'm behaving? This is an overarching assessment and an understanding of who we are as, as image bearers of God and then allows us to make lasting change, not white knuckling until I screw up again, messed up decisions. So, that's the concentric circle model, okay? That's one model that helps us understand this overarching approach to dealing with purity well. So, if we can get guys thinking that way, then we can actually get them to buy in to be in purity groups for a few years rather than just a couple of months. Can you imagine the complexity of trying to do everything that I just finished saying in real time, in your life, over just a couple of months? Seems a little, kind of almost ridiculous, doesn't it? You wouldn't be able to pull it off. It's too much. You couldn't develop the maturity fast enough to tackle that. The second model is this, though. We call it the cycle of unhealthy sexuality. It's a terrible name. I can't figure out a way to reframe that or change it to to a better phrase. It's a cycle of unhealthy sexuality. It includes three parts. And basically, this is, if you can think three words on a page in a circle and then there's just arrows towards each of the words and obviously the arrows just kind of make this cycle between all three words it just sort of cycles through the first word is shame and the important thing for you to understand important thing for all of us to understand is that shame is not guilt guilt has to do with our behaviors Guilt has to do with the things that we do, again, for the most part. Some of this is generalization, and we can press more deeply into it with, in, outside of a context of a men's breakfast. But guilt has to do with the behaviors that we choose to do. What's great about guilt is that it's reasonably easily addressed. We confess our sins. We repent, we confess our sins, we're forgiven, and we no longer have to feel guilty about those behaviors that we've chosen to do. So that's guilt. Shame has much more to do with the assessment of who you are as an individual. Particularly as it comes, and this is sort of a a heightened component of what shame is, as I compare myself to others. It basically says, it's a self-assessment of saying, uh, I, am, I am less than what I want to be, less than what others think I am, less than what I actually should be. Should, by the way, is a, a profound shame phrase. Anytime you use the word should, watch out for shame. Watch out for shame. Shame is that first phrase that basically is messages to you and that you've owned and received saying, I'm worthless, I'm less than. And honestly, for many men, we, hmm, without getting too much into this, um, uh, we have found a way to dismiss shame and its effect in our lives. Uh, As you sit and ask the Lord to give you insight Uh, one of the most profound things that came, profound in a negative way, um, uh, that came out of the Garden of Eden, was that humanity knew this sense of shame. It wasn't just the guilt of taking the fruit, disobeying God and taking the fruit. It was the fact that they said of themselves, you, uh, pastor, cut me some slack here. Um, They said of themselves, what kind of people do this? We cannot let the Lord our God know that we have done this sort of thing. What kind of people are we? And so they hid themselves. So those of you who sit here and wonder about whether you experience shame or not, let me tell you, biblically, theologically, and in real life, you experience shame. It's what you choose to do with it that characterizes your life one way or the other. For a man who wrestles and grapples with issues of purity, shame is one of the strongest driving forces in his life. That's one of the reasons why it has to stay quiet. Keep it quiet. Don't tell anybody that you're struggling. See, that's shame. Don't tell anyone because they might find out what kind of a dirtbag and scum-sucking pig you actually are. Keep it quiet. That's the voice of shame in you. And what happens in shame is that ultimately, then, we as men move to a place of knowing, and here's a word that you are all going to translate as physical, but it moves then to the next phrase, and that is pain. When I say pain, typically, guys think hammer on the thumb, stub your toe, uh, whatever, aching back, whatever. That's not the kind of pain I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of pain that uh, leaves you disillusioned at the end of a day that leaves you feeling lonely or abandoned, that leaves you, you're leaving work or you're walking away from an interaction with your spouse or your family or your neighbor and you're feeling like a failure. Another guy would have done that differently. Someone else might have spoken different words in that situation, I'm feeling so much, and you guys wouldn't say this typically because we don't as men. We're not connected enough to our emotions. I'm feeling so much pain in this moment. I wish things were different. The biggest indication, and once again, many of you are saying, no, I don't, I don't experience that. I don't, I don't have pain. I don't have a relational or emotional pain. Yeah. The biggest indication that you have emotional and relational pain is anger. You could almost just replace the word pain with anger. I don't know very many men who don't wrestle with some measure of anger in their lives. Anger. As an emotional evidence of pain comes for those who are struggling with purity out of a message and a belief of shame, worthlessness, agony, of not being who we want and long to be. So that's pain. And then, guess what? We got to figure out a way to deal with that. We got to figure out a way to solve this. It's almost weird to say emotional pain because you guys might disconnect from that. To figure out how we're feeling so crappy about ourselves. Let me just use generic terms like that. And those of us who wrestle again with sexual sin and behavior, we found the answer because it's powerful. It's the answer of sexual pleasure. And the phrase there then in the cycle we, we use is wrong sexual pleasure. And what's powerful about that orgasm, what's powerful about that searching for the next alluring image, is that it actually starts doing something to address the very emotional pain that none of you or very few of you would even admit that you have. You don't even understand what's happening in you as you're clicking on that next image and longing for that next low cut top in the mall. You don't even see what's happening. But this is the process I'm telling you that's happening. There's a brokenness inside each of us, and we are trying to find a solution that we ourselves can take hold of and use when we think we want and need it rather than waiting on the Lord. I've found this solution, Lord, and I'm just going to hold on to it, if you don't mind. I can go to the internet and go to my phone. I can go to the local strip club and Dang, dang, that makes me feel better. And what's astounding about that is actually there's truth in that. It actually does make you feel better for a short period of time. And then we get wrapped up, wrapped up again into the very first word that we started with. Because what sort of a man does these sorts of things, when the high is gone, when the, when the endorphins have drained out of our system, We're left with the results of our sin. And that's the space that Adam and Eve were left in, and that's the space that we get left in when we choose solutions that are not God-honoring, particularly in this area of our sexuality. So that cycle, there are solutions to that, and you'll have to join an FMO group to find out what they are. Let me share one more illustration with you. And it really is, um, it's an attempt to help men grasp, once again, the concept that purity is not about simply about behavior, stopping this behavior. It's much more than that. If you can imagine a bonfire, you're out camping somewhere, you've got a huge, like, you know, a couple cords of wood, you're going to be there for a week or so. And there's this massive bonfire that you've started to stay warm, to just enjoy, to use marshmallows, whatever, you know, s'mores, s'mores. Um, And you take another piece of wood and you toss it on the fire. Well, think about if the fire itself was actually an illustration of my sexual addiction. And every time I reach for another piece of wood, that is the behavior of my sexual sin. And so I toss that onto the fire. And my, my sexual addiction does what then? It grows, right? Because when you feed a fire, it gets bigger and stronger and more and more out of control. And the more wood I'm throwing on there, the bigger and more out of control it is. You can catch that, that image, right? Well, if through healthy accountability, relationship with other guys, being known for who we truly are, instead of taking that next piece of wood through those relationships and accountability, that actually doesn't get thrown on the fire. And then more and more, those pieces of wood don't get thrown on the fire. Well, what happens when you don't feed a fire? It starts to die down because it's lost the fuel which to burn. And then what's great about this analogy is it's so true to the whole purity journey. Because as that fire burns down, As you begin stopping and bring to a close your sexual behavior, you actually get down to the embers as to why the fire started in the first place. You can actually begin examining and seeing the cause, the spark of why that huge fire began. And that is the longings, the desires, and the thoughts that have been driving this behavior for so many years that you have not even understood to this point. I sat with a good friend, and he said, I don't know why I do this. I don't know why I do this. This is why he's doing this. These are the causes for his choices and his behaviors. And this is the place that I would invite each of you to consider. As you assess and examine, what does it look like for you to live pure? I've been talking and even using words that describe pretty graphic sexual sin. You can use everything that we've just been talking about at any level of becoming more a man of God, more a man crafted in the image of his Lord, simply by overlaying this over your life. Look at the behaviors that are characterizing what you do. You have to be honest you have to be genuine. You have to be real with yourself. That's a really that's a tough change. That understanding of the complexity of what my purity, um, what represented my purity, was some of that, that aha moment that happened for me on New Way Day in January of 2000. It was realizing that I'm not going to just be able to walk away from this. This is not just destination. This is not just stopping my behavior. Oh, my gosh. This is a huge lifelong adventure that God's calling me on. It's a journey that, Lord, I'm in. I'm in because I'm sick and tired of the way I've been. So there's something in you that needs to click. Again, at whatever level and maturity that you're at, there's something in you that needs to click over into an owning and a willingness to engage with the Lord in transformation. My hope is that there are, I don't know, half a dozen, maybe a dozen of you that are, that are thinking and have been thinking for the last few minutes, yeah, it's time. Maybe today, what is it, the 2nd of June? Maybe, maybe, maybe June, June 2, 2018. Maybe this is going to be my new way day. Maybe this is the day when you say, it doesn't matter what it costs. I don't mean financially. I mean uh, in terms of uh, uh, being relationally known, in terms of uh, being honest with my wife, in terms of uh, maybe even job loss. It it doesn't matter what it costs because I'm just sick and tired of this. I can't keep doing this anymore. Maybe today is the day for some of you. That would be my longing. Um, I'm sure I have more notes there, but I'm out of time. So um, um, I'd like to pray, God, in this moment, this space that you have sanctified, we would ask that uh, there would be barriers that just sort of fall away as though they were sand. And Lord, knowing the journey myself, uh, I know that that makes many of these guys in this room feel just very naked and very bare and very exposed and very vulnerable and in that space God I would just I would just pray that your spirit would wrap yourselves around them in terms of even clothing them in their experience of that um, and father for those that are still pushing back and saying god this is BS this is this is stupid I, I'm not struggling with this and um, I live authentically lord I I just pray that your spirit would continue to press press on that heart and that and that attitude so god uh, transform us in surprising ways uh, when we leave here today amen